All right. Well, let's uh, let's come back in. Decided I'd take a couple months off and then just dive in fully. Do a bunch of stuff on my first Sunday here. It's a privilege to be here. Um, if you are new, my name is Travis. I haven't been around for a couple of months because I've been on a sabbatical. And I am now back, and I'm excited to be back. I feel energized, and I'm grateful to have had that opportunity. I might talk a little later about some of the thoughts I've had while I've been out. Um, but I did just want to start with this. A few months ago, there was a knock on my door, and it was my neighbor. He was on something, so he's fairly incoherent. It happens every once in a while. Um, and at that point, you know, you just really can't have a conversation. But he had this lawnmower, and it was sitting on my front steps. I was like, okay, he's got a lawnmower. And he's communicating to me incoherently that he didn't want it anymore because it was broken, but that he knew that my 13-year-old has a lawn mowing business, and he maybe thought that he could have it so he could fix it and have it for his business. Didn't know that my 13-year-old already has his own equipment, which is much better. So I didn't protest because you can't really argue with someone who's on something. <laughs> so I was like in my head, I'm like, all right, tomorrow morning, I'm just going to throw this out on the curb for free and somebody will be grateful for it and I don't want to fix it. It's, you know, whatever. Um, so I didn't think anything of it. I took it. It just sat there at my front door. Before I could put it out the next morning, this happened. See this guy? He's got a bandana on. <laughs> I love security cameras. <laughs> so I looked out the window and I was like, where'd that lawnmower go? That's weird. So I pulled up the footage. I was like, oh, this just happened just happened. So I took off running after him with my Bible yelling, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> it says so right here. It was in my socks. Just kidding. I didn't do that. I did go after him and I can't tell the whole story, but I did get to talk to him. A short time later, I had a broken lawnmower back in my possession. And I had invited him to church, which he was not interested in. I did get his phone number. I texted him the next day saying, hey, if you want that lawnmower, or if you need anything else, I've got a lot of resources via the family of God because we love Jesus, and Jesus is generous. You want to just like, go out for a beer? And he didn't respond back, so I called him. <laughs> he picked it up and wasn't interested in talking for some reason. I don't know. Thou shalt not steal. That's how I memorized this verse. The eighth commandment of the ten. That's the old King James. It's very kind of ominous, good old King James. You know, little kids, they don't really understand this. If you watch little kids playing together, you know, they, you can put a bunch of toys in front of them. They're not really interested in them until, you know, second kid picks up the toy and first kid goes, mine, right? And then steals it. Later on in life, you know, we see things like the lawnmower being stolen, and all of us as adults are like, that's wrong. We know it. 
We teach our kids, you know, don't steal your friend's toy. Don't steal your sister's toy. As they grow up, hopefully they get that eventually. Here's our current English translation, English standard. You shall not steal. It's a little more legible, a little less like run down the street after the guy beating him with the Bible. But regardless of the language, we grow up, we become increasingly aware that things like stealing are wrong. But why? You know, a while back, there was this group that asked a bunch of atheists to submit secular alternatives to the biblical Ten Commandments, and they brought in Adam Savage, who's one of the guys from Mythbusters, remember? So he's a prominent atheist, and they brought him in as a judge to judge these submissions to come up with the humanist or atheist Ten Commandments. And so some of the winners were things like, there is no one right way to live. That was commandment number two, I think. Every person has the right to control over their body. Now, I, I mostly agree with that. I mean, that's, 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 that's a good one. I don't agree with the first one. There is a right way to live. How about this? God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Now, I would take issue with that. I don't think that you can intellectually actually say that and be honest. Um, how about this? Be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize you must take responsibility for them. I completely agree with that. Problem is, my actions deserve more than I can responsibly pay back. The American Humanist Association has their own Ten Commandments. I found one that Richard Dawkins wrote. They're all kind of similar. Um, American Humanist Association, there's a couple of theirs. Harm to your fellow human is harm to humanity. Therefore, thou shalt not, funny that they commandeered that vocabulary, kill, rape, rob, or otherwise victimize everyone. Anyone, thou shalt act for the betterment of your fellow humans and be, whenever possible, altruistic in your deeds. These are actually both pretty good. Thou shalt impart thy knowledge and wisdom gained in your lifetime to the next generation so that with each passing century, humanity will grow wiser and more humane. And I think the problem with all of this is that God is necessary, not just for right and wrong rules, like ways of living, but for meaning. They're trying to indicate that there's a possibility to have right and wrong and meaning outside of the absolute standard of God. I think no matter how many good feelings you might get from nice statements like act for the betterment of your fellow humans, if there is no God, what are we? Like on what basis can we make rules? If there's no God, we're just the accidental result of a collision of random molecules that they never really stop to ask why those molecules exist in the first place, but somehow they bump into each other and bam, there's a human being and there's a whole race of human beings on this planet that somehow works specifically perfectly enough for all of us to breathe the right amount of chemicals to keep staying alive in this sort of reciprocity with this cycle of eating things and you know all the stuff that we live in. No matter how we feel like that's a beautiful thing outside of God, think about it on a grand scale. And these are the kinds of thoughts that would keep me up as a little kid when I was dealing with before. I don't really deal with insomnia a whole bunch now, but I did before I became really a believer and a follower of Jesus. And it was because of questions like this. Think about the grand scale. If you're paying attention to the scientific method, if you're paying attention to what common science says the prevailing views on the vast eons of 14 billion years of existence of the universe and the tiny little blip that's like holding up a thousand page book 
The human existence in the grand scheme of that long of time, that's like a fraction of the period at the end of the very last sentence of that book. How meaningless is that existence? Especially when you consider that existence could potentially have the sun die, it'll go out, the planet grow cold, and you think about the infinite, meaningless darkness on the other end of that existence where no one will be there to care about anything that your meaningless little minuscule nothingness did to you or anyone else. If there is no God and we're just chemicals, who is to say what is meaning or right and wrong? But even atheists are committed Committed to not harming fellow humans by killing, raping, robbing, or otherwise victimizing them. It's like it's built into humanity to just know these things. And I want to submit that's because God exists. And ultimately, it's because of who he is. And the fact that who he is, the image of that is built into each one of us, as soon as you start saying that there's no standard, that there's no God, no God, or maybe you just say, hey, people, there is a God. A lot of people are actually pretty okay with that. But then you say, but he has moral rules. He's a judge. Well, they have problems with that. So they get rid of the idea of God because that seems bad. And then they wonder why someone would pick up a gun and walk into an elementary school and kill children. And I don't wonder why that is. You eliminate God, you end up killing people. Because if there is no God, there's no standard on which to base our ethics, our morals, our standards for anything, whether that's how I treat my neighbor or how I deal with my politics. There is no neutral. There is either God's way or some other religion, even if it's humanism and secularism. There is no neutral middle in this. I am a 200-pound human being made in the image of God. Without that image of God, I am equivalent to a barrel that is 200 pounds of what? Hydrogen, carbon, calcium, phosphorus. Throw all that in a barrel. Without God, you can do whatever you want with me as if I were that. And it would be the same. So the Ten Commandments are based on us being more than just a barrel of chemicals. All right, so there's my intro. <laughs> We're made in the image of God, the God who gives meaning, the God who is, the God who exists and has things about him that define what is best for human thriving. And I titled this message, How to Thrive. Because without that image and without understanding that, there's no way for us to live and everything will lack meaning. So all right, is everybody filled with like the existential dread of the bigness of everything, right? <laughs> Every person, look around you, every single person, the person you're sitting next to is a mini model of who God is. His goodness, his beauty, his, all of it, it's right there in them. Because of that image, that person sitting next to you has so much value and dignity and that has to be preserved. We've got to recognize that. That's what the Ten Commandments, at least the last six, are all about. How to recognize that image of God in someone else and how to actually treat it the way we should. 
So last week, Aaron went over Commandments 5. Uh, I think it was 5, 6, and 7, right? Honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery. He mentioned that we tend to just sort of judge ourselves by we haven't murdered, right? But then he took us the next level, like, no, it's actually in your heart. Like, if you hate your brother, it's the equivalent of having murdered him. It's a big deal. So I've got the last three today and then just kind of a summary for all of the ten. So the first four commandments, if you remember, they kind of deal with our relationship with God. Last week, they, they all connect with something God has built into each one of us, and that is the image. Each person is a picture of God, and to harm them in whatever way, whether it's a power difference, a struggle, whether it's, it's you're abusing them, whether you're eliminating their life by murdering them, it's you're harming the image of God in them. You are dishonoring God and dehumanizing them, right? So we have this first one, you shall not steal. And I, I was technically robbed with that lawnmower. Now, that was a very small thing. I think we have to start here. What is sort of the implication of you shall not steal? What does that imply? I have stuff. So right here, built into this commandment is the indication that private property is a reality. And it's actually God-given. Because something in us, made in the image of God, is designed to care for things outside of ourselves that are material possessions. Like when Adam and Eve are put in the garden before the fall of man, before evil even existed, and they're given charge of the land and told to be the caretakers. This is yours. You get to do what you want with it. Do good things with it. And I've been given a lawnmower, and if you're going to take my lawnmower, you're taking away the very thing that God has given me to care for and cultivate, which ultimately reflects on my lawn and then what my neighbors think about all that, you know, so on and so forth. But just a thought, I think this is, I'm not, I can't go, I can go into so many different things on all of these. I think this is why socialism doesn't work. Because God built into us that property is something we should have within his boundaries. And if you go to a fellow human being and you say, I'm going to take what is yours because it's not fair and I'm going to have it. He says, no, that's wrong. You shall not steal. I mean, you could go further into that, but there are studies that say, that have proven, shown, that neighborhoods, um, you know, they have high crime, things like that. They get better when you establish home ownership in those areas. If you're just renting, it's a completely different mindset. Just interesting. So those of you who have been robbed, you know, it's, it's dehumanizing. It, sometimes it's a small thing. Sometimes it's a big thing. Last year, my identity got stolen. It was a really big deal. It caused a massive headache, and I just felt trampled on as a human being. It's all dealt with now, which is good. If I ever buy anything on credit, I'm going to have to unfreeze my security, and that's going to be a pain. But I mean, my uh, credit... But your personhood gets trampled on because why? It's violating an image of something that God has placed in you that reflects who he is. So if you steal from someone, you're taking part of the world that they've been like handed to take care of, just like Adam was handed a garden. You're taking that away from them and removing the God-given right to be that caretaker of that thing. But if there is no God, who cares? You could justify breaking a plate glass window in a riot and going into the store and taking all the things out of it. Because you might as well. So that's the first commandment that we're going to talk about today. Here's the next one. You shall not bear false witness 
against your neighbor. You know, what's interesting, I mentioned do not lie at the beginning. It's actually not one of the Ten Commandments. This is the closest thing to that in the Ten Commandments. Do not lie happens later in Leviticus 19 where that's actually blatantly said. It is part of God's law. Don't lie. This is kind of like a subset of that, and it relates to how are you speaking of your fellow human beings about the truth? You shall not bear false witness This could be positive, it could be negative. In Leviticus 5, there's an indication that if you see something that you know is true, and maybe it's playing out where everybody believes that it's false, but you don't say anything, you're just as guilty of this commandment if you don't say the truth. So you could say something that's false, or you could fail to say the truth. There's kind of a positive negative on this same thing. And for some reason, I think we as Christians tend to tolerate some forms of this. If you think about slander and gossip, I can't tell you how many times in the last 21 years of being on staff here that I've intercepted gossip. Most often exaggerated and untrue, meaning false. Sometimes it's true, but usually even then it's got some nastiness associated with it in the person that's giving it. And we tend to tolerate it for some reason. It's not good. The Bible speaks clearly about that. If a brother has wronged you, go talk to him in private. Don't bring it to me to deal with. Now, there is an escalation clause, and we could get into that, but we won't talk about that right now, where it will need to go to some other people. But I think we have an area that I'd love for all of us to lean into, maybe even more than just like slander and gossip within here, bearing false witness about someone. You're speaking behind someone's back about something. It's the Internet. Because I think we can fall into other versions of violating this commandment. I can't tell you how many times over the last few years I have seen dear, beloved saints of God post things on social media that are absolutely false. And it feels like a small thing. But if you don't stop to do a little research to see what it is that you're sharing, whether it's true or false, or maybe... It's gray, but it's being painted as if it's all this or all that. And the main reason you're sharing it is because it just really, really attacks that other side because they're bad, and so that's okay. You may very well be guilty of violating the ninth commandment. It's hard to tell sometimes, especially as we head into this post-truth world of deep fakes and who knows what is actually real. There's there's just so much. I think we feel justified because it supports my my side so well, I feel justified in sharing it. I would love to encourage us to not do that. Because if it's false and you're sharing it, then you are violating the ninth commandment. You're bearing false witness. And honestly, most of the stuff we end up posting on Facebook or whatever, Twitter, X? Is it called X? What? I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't get it. But most of it's just straw man arguments anyway, you know, where you built up a man of straw, which is like the weakest part of the other side's argument, just to tear it down. I would encourage all of us in this room, like, we've got some smart people in here. Find the best of the arguments on the other side. That's called steel manning. Understand it to the level where you could say it to the other side and they go, yes, you fully understand me. And then tear it down in love. Speak the truth in love. 
I'd, I'd be fine with you sharing that on Facebook, as long as it's loving. I think the tone can also negate the um, truthfulness of what we share. Anyway, there's my rant on internet things. I just don't know why we who have Jesus and all of eternity to look forward to would settle for less than the truth when we speak, even if it does support, quote, our side. This is John Stuart Mill, right, who said, he who only knows his own side of the case knows little of that. Plus, your motivation, if you're behind a computer screen, you can't see the person, but it's a neighbor on the other end of it that you're violating. It's a person made in the image of God, and you need to dignify that image. I ran across the etymology of the word integrity a while ago. It comes from the Latin integer, meaning whole. So you know you have whole numbers and fractions. So a person of integrity, a person that's not bearing false witness, a person that doesn't have falsehood in them is whole. They're not a fraction. Just like God is one, he's not divided. If you speak falsely, you're divided against yourself and you're violating the image of God because he's the truth and he's one. All right, next one. This is the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So have you coveted any oxen lately? They're just so, like, cool and big and it looks so good in my yard, <laughs> munching on my aspen trees. I'm just kidding. I don't think I've ever coveted an oxen. Or a donkey. I haven't, but sometimes I think HGTV might just be guilt built on violating the Tenth Commandment. So you always see this. I'm a butterfly therapist. I'm a stay-at-home astronaut. Like they ask the couple, like, okay, we need to look at three different houses, and you're going to move into one of them. What's your budget? And by the way, what do you guys do for a living? And it's always like. How on earth can you afford a house that's worth $3.2 million? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. Anyway, I, don't, I honestly don't really covet that $3.2 million house on the beach in the Mediterranean. I really don't. But if I'm honest, when we went camping with Jeff and Angie a few months ago, Jeff was showing me his solar panels on his camper and how they fed into his lithium-ion batteries and I looked at my little measly conventional battery with no solar panels on my camper, and I coveted. Jeff, I'm, I'm sorry I sinned against you. I'm <laughs> confessing. Honestly, if I worked a little bit, I could afford solar panels like that and a battery like that, but I'd have to make the choice between that and being able to afford other things that are more important. And besides, my little battery actually works just fine for my purposes. I don't need it, but I sometimes wonder about us, though, here in Fort Collins, because we live in the world of affluence. We're inundated by the, the end result of basically billions of dollars being spent on advertising and reels and everything else and the data mining where they know every little nuance about you, and so they can feed you exactly what it is that your little heart desires that you don't have yet. So you can go and just easily just click that buy button just instantaneously. And I've ordered something from Amazon and gotten it the same day. I can instantly have the desire of my heart that they've fed me 
that I apparently didn't know I needed. But their billions of dollars are feeding into our souls and pushing us into violating this commandment over and over and over again. Do you see something different about this commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. It doesn't say anything about taking your neighbor's house. Right? So stealing, what it is, is it's actually downstream of violating this commandment first. Because this commandment, this is the first one that's really, when you're speaking about the other things with your neighbors, it's something going on inside. It's like the prelude to the action. If you covet your neighbor's wife, you haven't necessarily committed adultery yet in its fullest extent, but you're well on the way. And so God is like, hey, there's something in your heart that I'm really concerned about. And it hasn't manifested necessarily into outside action, but it completely is controlling you. I think here in Fort Collins, I just want to be, let's just pave the way with being open and confessional, right? So in context with this, just a short time ago, Sarah and I have been thinking we would love to get the kids some martial arts lessons. It'd be really good for them. We have other people we know whose kids have done that. We've got no adults who've gone through that. It's, been, it's really a benefit. We looked at the price tag, and we looked at the time commitment, and we had to say no. And my heart for a moment covets the fact that other people's kids get to have this opportunity and mine don't. And it's not because I don't make enough money. <laughs> it's because the money that I make, I've chosen to do something else with. We recognize that if we pay for these classes, we no longer get to be hospitable week in, week out with people in our house, feeding them tasty smoked meats, having good conversations over the table, potential gospel-sharing moments, moments of discipleship, regular connections in the family. So we would have the cost of money and the cost of a time commitment, and both of those things would make it so that we couldn't do this Christian life the way that we feel led to do. And I fear, this is me coming off of my sabbatical and just kind of questioning what we as Fort Collins people do as we try to follow Jesus. Do we look that different from our neighbors? in terms of how we live, how we choose to spend our money and our time. I fear that we slip into this, whether you're coveting your neighbor's kid's experience and opportunity or your friend's batteries. It's such a nerdy thing to... Because <laughs> we could pay for these things, we can take the time, but then we don't have time to do the valuable things, the things of meaning. And maybe they're even good things, but they add up as we start being like comparing ourselves to all of our neighbors. And it's easy to start comparing and feeling like we're missing out. And once you're convinced that you're on the, the bad side of what's unfair, you are, stop being able to see the blessings that are right in front of you. And your joy goes from just this wonderful thing of energy to just non-existent. And you start thinking, God owes me more, and your heart slips into coveting. And honestly, it's really hard to do community with people that you're jealous of. Now, on the flip side, if you've just given in and you've bought all the things and you've maxed out all of your time, it's hard to have any joy because you're just wiped out. It's so easy for us to be fed a heart of coveting. 
And like I said, it's different. It's about internal desires, not necessarily even external actions, but it does motivate and fuel the external actions. But it relates back to the first, the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. I am God. You should have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Because anything that you look at and covet, what you're doing is you're saying that thing is what I need for joy, for satisfaction, for pleasure, for comfort, for fulfillment, for meaning. And you've suddenly put it in a place over God and it's an idol. So now we've been through all Ten Commandments. How are you feeling about it? Like maybe on one through nine you were doing pretty well. You're like, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not a thief. I haven't committed adultery. But maybe number ten nails you. It exposes what's really in us and that, you know, just one step and we'd violate the rest of them most likely. You know, God demands perfection. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. I just want to read the remainder of the chapter after the Ten Commandments, because I think there's some informative things in us to kind of wrap this up with. I think it's done with this, this commandment. And starting, so this is Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, that's because you know, God's there right in front of them. And they're seeing the results of him being there. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. This is key. If you in your heart go, I, even in my heart, have violated who God is by breaking one of these, it is a terrifying thing to approach his presence. You know it's going to destroy you. That's what they're feeling. They haven't even had the chance really to break all ten of these or any of them, but they're terrified. So Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth shall you make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And a little bit at the end. I was trying to sort that out. Like, how does that apply to us today? Because we're not under this covenant. We don't have altars and sacrifices necessarily. But an altar of dirt. Don't craft it. Don't make it beautiful with your tools, crafting stone. Just pile up some dirt and make sure when you approach it that you wear the appropriate thing because if you go up it, you'll expose your nakedness, you know, because they just wore like robes with no underwear back then, apparently. That's what it was. The new living is hilarious. It says you will expose your private parts. Like God is, I don't think now God is particularly concerned about when we approach him, let's just say Sunday morning in worship, 
what we're wearing necessarily. You know, there's not like altars and this, like these rules. Maybe he's concerned about, I don't even think he's concerned about the types of instruments we use during worship. But I think it could be easy for us to approach God too casually and not recognize the smoke and the thunder and the mountain shaking and the reality of the holiness of the presence of God and all that he is. And I think maybe our version of walking up the steps with our undergarments off or whatever is showing up to church late. God, I don't really value the time that you've prescribed me to set aside each week to be with your family. I'm going to sleep in instead. I'm going to struggle to get to church on time. Or just skip because Horse Tooth Reservoir is beckoning and I've got a boat. Not that that's absolutely sinful to do occasionally. It's okay. But if more often than not, we're approaching God as if somehow all of this is made for me. Like sometimes I get concerned. I'll go out to the lobby and someone say, worship was great today. I'm like, did God think that? Or are you worshiping the product that we craft like hewn stones? Just something to think about. Anyway, back in verse 18, the people's response to the presence of God, flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, they're afraid, they tremble, and then Moses says, don't fear, God has come to test you. Let's see. Do not fear, for God has come to test you. So don't be afraid to approach. God's here, don't be afraid. Moses said to the people, don't fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And I just want to close with this. Not all fear is good. That's that first kind of fear he's talking about there. It's an irrational fear. It's not maybe necessarily even an irrational fear. It's a rational fear. Because God could destroy them. But he says he's not going to. He's actually made a way for you to be able to approach him. But in that approach, fear. Fear can also be described as awe, reverence. Recognize the magnitude of what you are approaching. And don't do it casually. This isn't something you can do halfway. It's like the fear that I hope my kids have when they're playing next to the street that keeps them from casually stepping in front of a truck that's speeding by. Or the fear that makes me slow down a little bit when the road is icy. I recognize the magnitude of what could happen if I misstep here. So what God is saying to them, he says, don't fear. I want to be close to you and I want to draw near to you and I want you to draw near to me. I want to dwell with you and be near to you, but you can't do this casually. Now, at the very beginning of the service, I mentioned why we shouldn't lie. (laughs) So, I'm going to have Chad grab a microphone. And uh, if you're between the ages of 7 and 12, you have the opportunity to have a gift card to Dairy Queen if you remember what that was at the very beginning of the service. So no hands up yet. Put them all down. 
when I say go, you'll put your hands up, all right? So what I want is the answer to why should we not lie and go. Right back there, far all the way back. And you haven't answered yet, right, this summer? Okay. Why should we not lie? Go ahead and say your name and then. And the answer? God is truth and we are made in his image. Yeah. Perfect. Well done. <laughs> Come on up, dude. In case you guys don't know, this is Jude Keefe. His family has not been here for a while because they went on a church plant to Severance with Roger Everhart and family. Good to see you, Jude. So let me conclude. These commandments reflect who God is, even any deviation from them, even if it's just in your heart, as we saw with the last one, it violates not just the person you're sinning against as you hate them, a.k.a. murder them, as you lust for them, a.k.a. commit adultery. You're trampling on the image of God himself and everything that he is and since he is the only thing that can, to, can give meaning and purpose and value, when you violate these commandments, you are doing a horrific thing. It's an abomination. It's so bad. You can't even comprehend the dimensional, exponent, whatever, math problem that that is and how far apart those two things are. So I guess stop sinning. Right? That's what I've decided to do from now on. I'm just going to be perfect. That's what I concluded for my sabbatical. We're all going to be perfect from now on. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've spent some time thinking about the past 21 years I've spent on staff here. I've seen a lot over the years. One of the things I've noticed is our youth. I've gotten the privilege to see an entire generation go from start to adulthood and I was once a little kid in a congregation a lot like this one. And I was in Sunday school every single Sunday. I went through that. My teachers spent years trying to convince me to behave Christianly by teaching me the Ten Commandments and other rules. And they didn't actually teach me Christianity. I didn't get it until later. Don't steal. Because the Bible says so? Don't lie. Because the Bible says so? It's a good answer. It's true. But it's not all of it. These are good morals, but don't get them confused with Christianity because the humanists came up with the same ones without God. I'm concerned about what our kids learn when they're corrected parents. Just obey. Get your act together. Don't steal your sister's stuff. Why? Because the Bible says not to. As I was growing up, I was like the Israelites in verse 18. I was terrified of getting close to God because I knew I didn't measure up. I knew what I was supposed to be doing and the state of my heart, and I could not 
get it done. And I felt awful because the teaching around me seemed to indicate that that's what humans should be capable of. And I was exhausted trying to measure up, and I'm concerned that our families fall into that. I think the Apostle Paul indicated in 1 Corinthians 2.5, I was reading that, where we end up instilling in our children a faith that rests in the wisdom of men and all the sort of pragmatic handles we put around that for how to behave and how to do things right, rather than in the power of God. And Paul in that chapter makes a huge deal about how he doesn't want to dive into all those meaningless things. He says, all I want you to know is Christ and Christ crucified, and that's everything. That's where your power is because there's an ought to, yes, in the Ten Commandments. We ought to obey. Don't steal. But if you stop there in your instruction, it lacks the power to get it done. And so parents, when your child steals something, because they will, I did, don't just say get your act together and obey. That's not going to work. Because if our kids, if all of us, even adults, don't catch the glory of the gospel and fall in love with Jesus, we only end up exhausted as we try to behave because we're using our own power to get it done and not the power of God. Paul resolved to teach Christ and only Christ crucified. I was exhausted as I was growing up. I've seen other people grow up exhausted. And when a kid like that gets into high school, they become like this little morality police where they're like, everybody needs to obey around me regardless of what's going on in their own heart. And they start getting picky and critical and just the whole thing devolves into this divided mess of gossip and slander and grossness because everybody's focused on how to behave. It's like you put on the Christian clothes and you get them all nice and neat so that you appear right, but it's rot inside. Which is exactly what Jesus attacked the Pharisees for doing. And so we've got this American Christianity that's got gospel mixed with, I think, Protestant work ethic, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, American dreamism. And we give our kids this vision that the best thing you can expect in life is a really good education that delivers a really good career that makes you enough money to own solar panels and lithium-ion batteries to power your camper. (laughs) That's a small, tiny, meaningless vision for life. Why do we do that? Human thriving does not exist in that space because it's impossible to thrive when you're growing up or when you're an adult, constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering where you've screwed up. You get crushed under the continual weight of feeling like I'm supposed to be all of this and I just can't. These are really great principles for living that we need to discuss, we need to teach, we need to learn. Don't distort these comments into less discipline or less faithfulness or less striving for holiness. Don't get this confused for permissiveness or being lenient. That is not what I'm saying. But in less discipline and faithfulness, and striving for holiness are fueled by a love for Christ burning deep within us, they are worthless. It's like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, where he listed out his pedigree, and I think most of us 
probably have a pedigree like his. I know all the rules. If you live in Fort Collins and you manage to have a job and be able to afford a home in Fort Collins, you are a disciplined person. Just is. You are a disciplined person who's got your act together. You probably, at least on the outside, have followed these Ten Commandments pretty well, regardless of the state of your heart. And Paul said, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. As to genealogy, I was perfect. The Hebrew of Hebrews, perfect in regard to the law, righteous, faultless. And then he said, but whatever gain I had in all of that, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All the things that he's counting as rubbish, and by the way, rubbish is a sanitized word from the original Greek. It's offensive to us if we read the actual word. But he says, all of my good works, my adherence to the law, my ability to follow, do not lie, do not murder, do not covet, do not all this, is worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He talked about the law a lot in his writings. In Romans 7, <laughs> you got to read Romans. Romans is amazing. In Romans 7, Paul highlights what I think we all encounter when we really take a good look at the law, especially the Ten Commandments. Those are kind of the most accessible of the laws. And we can take a good look at our own lives. He talks about the law as something that holds us captive. As long as we live in the realm of the flesh, meaning I'm doing this on my own power, as long as I'm trying to obey all these things in my own power, which is what I'm afraid most of our kids actually absorb most of the time we give them lessons in morality. As long as I'm doing that, he says, Paul says, it held him captive. It showed how his sinful passions brought him only death. And then he brings up the 10th commandment that I just read. You shall not covet. He talks about sin. It produces in him every type of coveting. This is like the best Christian that has ever existed. And it produces in him every type of coveting. He said this commandment, do not covet, opened his eyes to the reality that coveting was killing him. It was rotting him from the inside out. He was trying to stop coveting. He knew it was good to not covet. But whenever he set out to not covet, he found himself coveting. Such a really interesting passage to read. He eventually screams out, what a wretched man I am. If you have not got to that point in your own life, you do not see the God who made the mountain shake and the lightning flash. You do not see him for who he truly is. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he starts writing the verse that changed my life when I was a teenager. Completely transformed me. I was being crushed under the weight of never measuring up to the rules. Paul goes from Romans 7 to saying this in Romans 8.1. Therefore, because of Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that sink in. So flip it around. Don't steal your sister's stuff. 
Okay, parent, you're approaching your child. Why? Depending on their age and what they can comprehend, you could simplify this. Say something like, because look what, what Jesus was willing to do for you. He was perfect. He was the standard that we're supposed to live up to. He was the standard by which we're supposed to measure ourselves. The perfect image of God himself. But we took that standard and we crucified him. And every time you steal or sin in any way, you're pounding those nails into his hands and his feet. Like you stealing from your sister. But he willingly put himself there for those nails to be pounded in because he loves you. He wanted to be close to you. And he saw that as long as you're doing these things, you didn't have access to him. So he saw that you had to be made perfect so that you could have access to him. He did that for your sister that you're stealing from. She's been bought with the same exact price, his blood, his life. And when you steal from her, you're trampling all over the beauty of who Jesus is, all that he's done, and everything that he's put into her as well. She bears his image. And you just take him into your arms and you say, you don't need to fear that judgment of God. You don't need to fear even death itself because Christ defeated that death on the cross and paid the price of the judgment for your sin. All you have to do is approach him and be with him now. So we do that together. And then you just pray together. That should be Christian parenting 101, but instead I think we go, don't do that, get out of my hair. So here's a tablet. <laughs> Numb yourself. Don't get me started on phones and tablets with our kids. There should be a 21-year-old age limit on those things. Sorry, I'm, I decided to come back from my sabbatical and say everything I think. <laughs> so if I start making people mad, I'm sorry. <laughs> the reality is what we have to do is abide. John 15. God is doing all the work in the vineyard, and you're a branch. All the branch has to do is stay connected to the vine. And then it's alive, it's growing, it's being pruned, and it's bearing fruit. Fruit meaning not stealing. Respecting the image of God as it is in the other people around you. Man, why don't you guys come on back up? So I think for all of us, as we approach the commandments and the rules and everything else, I think as Hebrews 10 says, because of what Jesus has done for us through his blood and his sacrifice, Hebrews 10 says, you have confidence to draw near because of the blood of Jesus. So draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Your hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And I don't mean, like I said, that this doesn't mean we should strive to obey and be holy. We should, but it means we do it very differently. None of what I do now is to make God happy or appease him. 
I do it now because he's already pleased with me. And I'm, and I'm awestruck by that. It just overtakes me. I don't know how else to describe it. But I'll end with the Hebrews 10.24 because this isn't just for parents communicating to their kids and things like that. We all need to do this. Husbands, wives, singles with friends and roommates. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the most important thing we could possibly do. We come together to worship God, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Why would we do anything else? Why would the the lake beckon and feel better to us? Something's wrong with our hearts if we're not seeing. We're not seeing what Jesus has done. And that day drawing near, that beautiful day when we get to see Jesus face to face and all the desires of our hearts will finally be fully directed at him instead of divided because of our flesh. It'll all be gone. We'll be fully satisfied in him. When the sun grows cold and the planet dies, you know, we get a whole new planet. That's going to be so cool, the new heaven and the new earth. I just love that concept. That's the truth. In the eons of time and infinite future, someone will be there to care how I live right now. And this little tiny blip of my human existence on this planet, it matters what I do on a Sunday morning at 9.30 and how I engage with the other people that have been made in God's image around me. And 20,000 years from now, The Bible says at the right hand of God, there will be pleasures forevermore that I will be experiencing. Why would I do anything different? So don't steal because of that. 